Colossians chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 22 through the first verse in, in chapter 4. So open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Well, growing up in the Reynolds household, uh, Saturday mornings meant uh, getting up to work, to work in our house. Uh, actually, it was often on Saturday mornings, uh, you could hear this, uh, my dad would get up and he would go in the bathroom, he had this radio, and he would turn on his country music and he would turn it loud on. And the point of that was to move any of us who were still in bed sleeping. Because it was time to get up. It was time to clean the house. And uh, my dad always uh, took care of cleaning the bathroom. And I don't know if that was from his military days, but he had to have it cleaned a certain way. But my sister and I, we were typically left fighting over who got to either dust or whoever got the vacuum. Okay? I was, I always wanted to fight for the vacuum. All right? It, I don't know about you, but there's too much stuff to move when you dust, right? Am I right? There's too much stuff when you have to, have to dust. Plus, I like the vacuum thing because you could always, I could at least have some fun with it. I could make, I could see how many straight lines I could make in the carpet when I was vacuuming and stuff. But dad would, would teach us that we had, if this is your house, you live in it, you gotta work to keep it up. And that even translated out to the yard. Uh, when dad would cut the lawn, he didn't let me cut the lawn for the longest time because I couldn't keep the line straight in the yard. He liked his line straight. You can tell what kind of dad my dad was. But he would always give me the job of, hey, Matt, why don't you go out and pick up the sticks in the backyard? And the reason that made it bad is because we had this huge oak tree, this huge oak tree in our backyard, and there were sticks galore. So it was always my job to go, go uh, pick up sticks, and that's why I grew up hating sticks, Okay. He also had to do this too. You know, he would uh, cut the lawn, and there would be those parts where you couldn't get to with the lawnmower. And we, I had my job was also to trim that. But we didn't have one of these things, these weed eaters. Y'all remember those little hand trimmers? We had those things. I hate those things. Okay, that's why I went out and I bought me a weed eater when I got out on my own. But Dad had this idea that you needed to learn about work and responsibility, and so that was my induction. To work. And it's important because there are many different views about what work is all about. And I want to share a few of those first. When it comes to the subject of work, some of the views in our society include this one, which is work is a necessary concession of life. That's the view that says, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. It's this concession of life view. It's the, as Robert Lewis described, it's when you go to work, you see work as something that you have to do in order to live, to play, to possess items and get what you want out of life. The fact is, when you view work as simply as that hard reality you have to bow to, it's a necessary evil. That if you or I could escape it, we, we both would, but we can't escape it. So, I think I get on with it. It's just the way of life kind of view. It's uh, I need to make the most of this necessary evil called work. That's the concession of life view. It's a prevailing view in our society today. There's another view which I call the work as my meaning in life view. This is the view that says the ultimate purpose of work is to fulfill myself. It's the view that success in life means success in my work. 
This sets up work as what defines a person. It becomes their identity. And in many ways, it becomes their idol, their, their center of worship. Now, I'm not saying, as I am about to share you what I think is the proper view, I'm not saying that we don't work in order to pay bills, to be able to possess things, or have things in life to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with that. Nor am I saying that uh, it is wrong to experience a sense of fulfillment or success in your work. That, that's okay. But if that's all there is to it, it's well short of what I call the God-centered view of work. See, a, a God-centered view of work says this to the first view, the concession of life view. It says, I work because... God has called me and designed me to work because it reflects His image and His glory. That's what I work. It's more than a necessary evil. It's actually a good thing I can do to represent Him. The God Center view says this to the second view of meaning in life. It says this. It says, yes, I give thanks to God that I can enjoy and take pleasure from the work that He calls me to do. Yet my identity is not found in my work. Christ is my identity. And because I'm identified with Him, once again, I can enjoy work and use it for His glory and for His purposes. It's the God-centered view of work. And I think as we approach the text here in Colossians chapter 3, this will begin to help shape us and it lays out how do we develop this God-centered view of work. How do I model this to my children? And how do I, how do I teach them what this looks like? So open up with me to Colossians chapter 3 and let me read this text to you. Verse 22 says this, Slaves in all things obey those who your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Now as we approach this text, the first thing that always jumps out at me, and is that something we always have to wrestle with, is the fact that this is addressed originally to slaves. So what are we supposed to do with that? How, what do we make of this idea in the, in the Bible's view of slavery? I don't have time to go into it in great detail. I actually covered this in a series we did this past summer in 1 Timothy 2, verse 6, 1 through 2. But I want to make this summarize this up for you. And it's this. The Bible does not condone the slavery of early American history. It doesn't. I'm going to give you just two passages right away to, to show you, to point out why this is true. First of all, is in 1 Timothy 1, verse 10, in the midst of a listing of all other sins, in the midst of that listing, he lists one of them as enslavers. That is, if you're a kidnapper, an enslaver, or a, a, a slave trader, he's saying that is sin. That's sin. Exodus chapter 21, verse 16 says this, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. That was sin. But you say, well, well how do you explain then this handling of slavery here? Why, why didn't they just start protest? 
Well, the way that they handled it in uh, the first century church, the way that God led them to handle it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was that instead of taking a frontal assault to the issue of slavery and trying to tear it down through protests and other ways like that, that they commissioned them to attack it through the proclamations of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The thought was, don't start on the outside, but go to the heart of man so that you might be changed with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that will then begin to affect your outer behavior and treatment of people. Matter of fact, if you look in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. It says, Masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Now, what's interesting is that one of the masters in this church... His name was Philemon. And there's another letter written to Philemon. And Philemon just had to ha- happened to have a, a slave whose name was Onesimus. Onesimus ran away from his slave owner, uh, Philemon. And he just happened to go and come upon a city that where Paul just happened to be there. He heard the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, Philemon came to know Christ as his Savior. Knowing that Paul, this is what he's teaching here, he tells Onesimus, hey, you need to go back to your slave, slave owner because he knew uh, Philemon was a Christian. So he sent him back to him. He just happens to be part of what he's carrying is probably this lesser letter here to Colossae, but he's also carrying a letter to Philemon. And so here he is in the midst of this, this command's going on. And look how Paul tells Philemon to receive Onesimus back. He says this, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, so he, he takes this up. He goes from just the earthly to the spiritual thing. He says, you no longer have him back as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. He's in essence, he's saying, hey, Philemon, you treat him differently. He's your brother. And he's saying this, you masters, you don't treat slaves, you don't treat bond servants, and that's what many of them were actually were. You don't treat them that way. You treat them as your master treats you with fairness and justice. And see, it was through the proclamation of gospel that men such as William Wilberforce would come along and he would be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then it changed the way that he sought to to craft legislation within the British Parliament. And it was through his legislation and fight that over years that eventually... Slavery would be prohibited in the British Empire. It was through a changed life that was changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when we approach this text, we approach it more from the sense of how does this apply to us as an employer or employee relationship. Sadly, there is still slavery within our society, particularly the sexual slavery type. But typically the principles we gather from this is is that how does this relate to an employee? So what I want to do is I want to lay out for you Four ways to develop a God-centered view of work. And the first is this. It's knowing it is God's calling for you. Look with me to verse uh, 23. Look what it says there. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Now, this doesn't explicitly teach us that God has called us to to work, but it, it tells us that God has particularly called us to a type of work, a quality of work. But nevertheless, God has called us to work. Now, when I bring up this subject, usually the objection is, well, Matt, wait a minute. Isn't work a part of the curse? Isn't work a result of sin? 
No. Absolutely not. Remember, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, what you find is that the cause or the problem that we have in work is not work in and of itself, but it's the sin and it's the curse that was put on the land because of man's sin that causes the pain and the toil within work. It's the fact that we have to work amongst a sinful, fallen world that makes work so difficult, but work in and of itself is not a curse. Remember, if you go to Genesis chapter 1, and what do you find in Genesis chapter 1 is that you tell us that, first of all, you find that we are created in the image and the likeness of God. In His image and in His likeness, we are meant to reflect God and His glory in all that we do. If you also read in Genesis chapter 1, what you see is you see God creating all the things on the separate days. And then when we get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, he looks back and he calls all that this creation that God has done, he calls it work. God is a worker. In his image and likeness, as we work, we reflect God. Matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, What we see is that uh, God looked at the earth and he said there was no man in it to cultivate it or more literally to work it. And so he creates man. And then in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2, God says he puts us in that land. He specifically gives mankind the call to cultivate the land or to work the land. We were designed to work in order to reflect God. Work is not a curse. We've been called and designed to work, to reflect the image and the likeness of God. And we need to understand this because when we begin to understand and see work as something designed by God, it begins to change our perspective of the work that we do. The reality is, too many times in our life, we like to take secular and the sacred, and we like to draw a line through it. And God says, no, you remove that line. Instead, you take the sacred and the secular and you draw a circle around it because in reality, all that is, whatever you do, it's for me. I've designed you to work in that way. <clears throat> the reality is, all, there's no part of life that does not relate to God. God's image and God's glory should come to bear in every part of our lives. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, it says, Whether then you eat or you drink, do all to the glory of God. There's nothing left out of that. All that we do is for the glory of God. Everything. Growing up, my mom as a little girl, she dreamed of being a missionary to Africa. That was her dream. She had this this dream there that she would go off, and she was actually the first one to come to know Christ and her immediate family. And uh, she had this dream that she was going to go off someday, and and she was going to go and work amongst African people there. But God never called her to that. Instead, what God called her to do is to teach for some over 30 years as a teacher of teaching math, reading, English, and science, and all those things. And the large majority of that she taught amongst a public school. And what my mom came to learn through that, that her calling, that God's calling to work in that public school and to uh, represent Christ and to teach reading well, to teach math well, to teach spelling well, and all those things, that what wasn't any less sacred than going across the ocean to be a missionary in Africa. Because the reality is when you understand that in your work and in everything you do, you're called to glorify God. See, God isn't so much concerned 
about holy activity. What God is primarily concerned about is that he's concerned about that we are becoming a holy people, that we are becoming a Christ-like people. And when you grow in holiness and when you grow in Christ-likeness, then it doesn't matter what you do because you bring that Christ-likeness to whatever that work is. You glorify God. Therefore, that work has become sacred. So what I'm telling you folks are, I don't care what it is you do. If you represent Christ, you're following after Christ, you have been called to do a sacred work for the glory of God. Amen? It's powerful, folks. That ought to change the way that you get up in the morning when you understand that principle and that truth in your life. Now look at this text here. Because the reality is we not only want to know that we're called, but if we're called by God to work, we're also called to work with a biblical quality of work. Look what the text says there. Verse 22, it says, Slaves in all things obey. That means to obey literally means to hear under. It's, it's, it's the idea of you get under somebody and you're hearing and you're listening and you're doing what they call you to do. So first we see that it's supposed to be marked, our work is to be marked by an obedient service, but notice how it describes this obedient service, all right? It, it says, we are those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. It is, our obedience to our, our masters or our employees, our bosses, isn't just to be something, something we do externally. It's not just something we just walk through the motions. I'm here. I've got to get paid. I'm here. I'm going to do my thing. I'll walk through it. I'm out of here. But it, it's something deeper than that. This word here for external service is a, it's a neat word. It's literally translated eye service. Eye service is what it means. I've told you this story this past summer. But I'm going to tell you it again because it's, it's a good one. But there was a, a missionary to Africa. And he was working amongst these national people. And as he was working amidst them, he, he found that they were pretty poor workers. I mean, they, they just, they were lazy. Uh, anytime that he would wander away from it, they stopped doing his work. And he was really frustrated by it. And so as he was out there working amongst them, and as he was trying to keep them working, he, he wore a glass eye. And, it, and his glass eye started getting irritating to him. So what he did is he, he, he took this glass eye out. And he put it down on a stump. And then as he put it down on the stump, he, he, he had to go do something, so he wandered away. And when he started coming back up on the workers again, he noticed that they were all still going along, and they were still doing their work. And they kept looking over at that eye on the stump. Then he put it together. They had never seen anything like that. And they were thinking he was still watching them. I mean, I wish I had one of those just for my kids, just to lay those out. In each of the rooms, I would put one there. Well, he thought he had it made. He thought he had these, these nationals that he was working with. He thought he was going to have them going. Well, he came back one time, and as he was walking up, he noticed from a distance that there they were. They had their tools down. They were laying around. They weren't doing their work. And as he came up, he came to discover that while he was gone, one of those workers had slipped behind that stump, taken off their hat, and put it over the eyeball. The reality is, I tell you that because we like to do that at work sometimes. We like to do that when we don't think the boss is really looking. We're not really working. And God's Word says that's not how you're to work. That's not how you're to do it. 
When the gloss is away, we should not be ones who are marked by, by laziness. We not should not be one that's marked by complaining or bad-mouthing a boss behind their back, disrespecting them, cutting corners, or goofing off. That's not who we're to be. That's not how we're to act. Or instead, we're to do it with sincerity of heart, which literally, sincerity means without a fold. It was, they, they took that without the fold because it was the idea that everything is out in the open. It's not, it's not hidden in, in a fold. That is, there's no duplicity in your work. It's no hypocrisy. It's, you're sincere. You're, you're all open to see whether that person is there or not there. And that's the idea of integrity. Integrity is you're the same person when someone's there that when no one's there. When no one can't see you, you're still that same person. My dad, who I've spoken of earlier, who tried to ingrain work in me, he was a policeman. And uh, I remember at my dad's funeral that the last chief of police that my dad worked under uh, they were all there. They were, they were honoring him. They had an honor guard and all these things. But that last chief of police they worked under came up to my mom and, and just told her, she said, said, Jackie, one of the reasons that I had Jerry, I would, he would often tap my dad's shoulder. He said, one of the reasons I would tap Jerry's shoulder to do internal investigations, that was investigations within the police department, one of the reasons I had him do that because I knew he was the one guy I could truly trust on the police force. That's the kind of integrity we want to have. That someone can know and they can look at your life, they know you're a follower of Christ, and they know that you're the same whether they're watching you or not watching you. That's the kind of workers we're supposed to be. Look at the text here in verse 23 as well. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as to the Lord, or work heartily as for the Lord rather than men. Literally, that word heartily, it's, it means from the soul. You can kind of feel it, all right? You can, uh, you can see that it, it comes kind of from the gut. And, and what it, it denotes is it's this idea of enthusiasm and, and effort. That is, when you approach work, you're giving enthusiastic effort and, and, and you're giving yourself to it. You're working hard. You're not, you're not going through. You're not being cold and indifferent. You're not just walking through the motions because I've got a clock in and I've got a clock out. But it's no, you're, you're really working at it. And this is why it matters. It matters because if you are identified with Christ, the way that you work affects the one that you proclaim. Let me just show you a few verses that, that point out how, why this is so important. 1 Timothy 6 verse 1 says this, All who are under the yoke as slaves are regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. And then comes, here comes the purpose clause, the reason clause. So that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. He says, work this way because it's not just your reputation, but it's the one that you follow's reputation on the line. Then look at Titus 2 verses 9 through 10. He says, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. That is, when you get up and you dress, you get your dress on to go to work, you need to realize that you're not just dressing to get up and just go to do work physically, but that you need to get up and prepare yourself spiritually as well because when you go, you are adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. 
Through your work, you have an opportunity to make the gospel of Jesus Christ look appealing and inviting to people. Did you know that? That's how powerful, that's how sacred your work is. Scott Gilchrist, who was Grant's pastor in, uh, in Oregon, told the story of how he worked for uh, four years for a large company hanging phone lines. And he says, in the midst of this, there was one man who had come to know Christ. And this man really came to know Christ. And he became very vocal at, at, the, at the phone company there and on these teams that went out and hung these phone lines. And he was always sharing with people and telling people about Christ. But there was a problem. He was sharing so much that he wasn't doing his work. And here he is, he's proclaiming Christ, but he's not doing his work because he's talking too much. And he began to get reprimanded for it several times. And they had to reprimand him so many times, they eventually had to say, you got to go. And they fired him. Scott said there was another man in the same company. And uh, this man, he also knew Christ. He also was not afraid to share his faith with others. But he understood something, and that is he did his work well. He worked diligently. He worked hard. He came on time and finished on time. He, he was such as that other people wanted to work with him because he did his work so well. Yet at the same time, he was able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now do, who do you think message of the gospel was better received? It was the second man. You see, the way that we do our work affects the quality of the message or how we deliver our message of the gospel. So this is the reality. Do you, do you understand that before Christ ever mis- ministered for three years, that he labored for years? That he labored for years as a carpenter before he ever started his three-year ministry? Certainly, his impact on the, in the workplace made an impact to those people that he ministered to later. The reality is we need to, whether we're laying phone lines or power lines, whatever it is, we need to show the workforce what Christ would look like if he was putting up power lines or phone lines. The reality is if we were working on a construction site, we need to show people what Christ would look like if he was working on a construction site. If we're a businessman and we're called followers of Christ, we need to show what a businessman would look like if Christ were making a business deal. If we're finances, if we're running finances, then we need to show what Christ would look like if he was operating a financial company. The reality is whatever we do, we need to show them what Christ looks like if he was working in that. And here's why we do that. Look at the third point, verse 24. It says, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve, he says. The reality is if you have a boss you don't like, and <clears throat> you're, you're tempted not to work well for him, you need to realize it's not him you're serving primarily. The one that you're serving before him is your servant Christ. Christ is the one you first and foremost serve. The reality is we need to go each day to work, and we need to realize that Christ is our personal supervisor. So that is, if we are going to be an individual who hey, types up letters, we need to type up letters as if Jesus Christ was going to sign that letter. As if we're a, a worker who deals with computers and programs computers, we need to program that computer in such a way that we, we're thinking that Christ is going to use that computer. 
If, if we are, are in, in another field or for another thing, if we're, if we're building houses, we need to build houses like as if Christ was going to live in that house. Because that's whom you serve first. It's Christ. One of my professors, uh, Dr. Howard Hendricks, traveled all over the place and go and speak and teach at different places. And he often traveled on American Airlines because that was the hub up there in Dallas. And he traveled so much that American Airlines actually asked him to be an inspector of sorts. And what he was inspecting was he was inspecting how the stewardess and all the people who worked on the, the airplane, how they worked. And he, they would actually have them write up reviews. Well, there was one trip in particular that there was a stewardess. That it was just one of those flights. It was one of those flights that uh, you had kids just crying everywhere. And I've actually been the cause of some of those flights before. But you had kids crying everywhere. You also had uh, drunken businessmen on that flight. And what Dr. Hendricks noticed that through all this, this woman carried herself with professionalism, and she carried herself with a smile. And he was just going to write up a revaving review of her. And, and he couldn't wait to write up, but he actually went as on his way out, and he, he grabbed that lady and kind of told her uh, what he thought about her performance. And she turned and she said to him, Well, Mr. Hendricks, I don't work for American Airlines. He was just kind of taken aback. He's like, well, aren't you on an American Airlines plane? And, but she said, then she saw his bewilderment, and she said, no, I work for Jesus Christ. You see, that's the attitude each of us should take every day to work. Yes, we have a boss. I understand. I, yes, we must please them. There's things we must perform. But ultimately, the one that you serve is Jesus Christ because the work that he has called you to is sacred because you represent him. But notice this. The Lord takes note of how you serve. And there's a greater reward in mind. Look what it says there in verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. That is, there's an inheritance that you're going to receive. I believe this is talking about some sort of heavenly rewards. Perhaps it's something in the judgment seat of Christ, which is talked about in 2 Corinthians 5.10. He says, there's an inheritance ahead for you. And then he says this in the rest of the verse, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. He's not talking about here of condemnation uh, of our sin or any of such things, but he's talking about the rewarding or not rewarding for how we serve him. Again, the judgment seat of Christ, I believe. He says there's an inheritance. Now this would have spoke volumes to the original audience, to the slaves. Because it was written in Roman law that no slave was to receive any inheritance. So you can imagine them hearing this, they're kind of overwhelmed by it. And then he says in the midst of us, but there is an inheritance for you. It's much better than anything you could ever get here on earth. It awaits you. He will reward us. See, a a God-centered view of work understands that. A God-centered view understands that the reward and blessing is just not here, but it's in the future as well because of the one I represent in the workplace. Now, you might ask, well, how does this translate into marriage and family? What, what is, how does this all fit into the series that we've been talking about, this road trip of thriving uh, as a family in the culture today? Let me just kind of tie this in to how this, this fits First of all, statistics say this, 
One statistic says men spend an average of 60 to 65% of their time on the job. They spend 30 to 35% of their time with family and personal interests, and 0 to 10% of their time with, with church activities. So this is important. There's a lot of time given to work. So how does this fit into to family? How does this fit into the call that, all right, I know I'm supposed to work with a quality of work. I know that I also to give time to my relationship with Christ and my marriage and my children. How do I, how do I balance all these things? I don't even like to use the word balance. Because balance denotes that you give equal time. But the reality is, most likely we'll never give equal time to all these areas in our life. So instead, I look at it this way. How do we manage these things? How do we navigate through these things? How do these things overlap each other for the glory of God? Well, let me give you some suggestions of how I think this needs to work. The first thing we need to start with is that we need to start with the order of our priorities. According to Scripture, we order those according to Scripture, and we need to follow those priorities. That is, we need to begin to think about what is of most <clears throat> value? What are the things I have to do in order to even affect these other areas? What is that? What does that look like? We see, if you don't develop priorities ahead of time, if you wait until you're out there and have to make decisions, you're going to come up with decisions that are not really good in the long run. So you've got to come with your priorities in mind when you have to make decisions about work and family and all those things. So I want to suggest to you an a order uh, that you might, uh, might go about. It looks like this, I think. I think Colossians makes this very clear that the one who is supposed to have first place in our lives is Christ. Colossians chapter 3 even begins with that. It begins with set your mind on the things above. And then from, from there, we go to the reality of our relationship with our spouse. And then we go from our spouse to our relationship with our children. And then we come to work. So there needs to be an understanding that I have to give time to my relationship with Christ in order that I might have a solid relationship with my wife. I need to have a solid relationship with my wife or husband in order that it might affect my, my, my family. And in my family life, then that has to affect as well how I navigate myself through work as well. So you have to start with those priorities. A second thing you have to consider and you have to ask yourself, am I keeping a good pace at work? And this is hard. This is hard to navigate. I wish I could just tell you, work 40 hours and go home. But the reality is there are many occupations that don't allow that. And by necessity, you have to work that. So for me to say, work 40 hours, get home, isn't realistic. The reality is my job isn't 40 hours. There's some days when it may be eight hours, but there's other days when it's longer than that. And so I have to navigate through that of how do I, how do, I do that and still manage with my family and other things that are of utmost importance to me. God also calls us to work, I mean to rest from work. He calls us to be, again, investing in our children, our church, and an unbeliever. So we have to ask this question, how do I set the right pace? And I think the question we have to ask ourselves is... Or am I making enough time for family, rest, and spiritual pursuits? Again, I'm not saying a quantity of time. I can't tell you what that is for you. But you need to ask that question because all those things are important. Am I making time for rest? I realize, there, again, there's times when you can't get as much rest. It's just the way it is. 
But is this a regular pattern of my life? Am I making time for rest? Am I taking time to invest in my wife and my children? And again, those spiritual pursuits. And here's how I go about that. Uh, three things I just want to suggest to you. One, pray and ask God about it. God, how do I do this? And pray and actually ask Him as you're praying for that. The second thing is to ask Him for wisdom. We've been studying our Wednesday night Bible study about wisdom. And wisdom is this. Wisdom is not what you know, but wisdom is the ability to take what you know, so what you know about God's call in your life, and to apply it skillfully to your life. Wisdom is taking knowledge and applying it skillfully to life. And you've got to ask God, Lord, give me wisdom to know how to navigate these waters of work and family and church. And then the third thing is you seek godly counsel. You ask other people. Hey, you tell me. Where can I manage this better? How can I manage this better? I remember uh, as part of what I was thinking of pursuing in my life is I was thinking about going on to get a doctorate in ministry. And I still may do it someday. But I know as I was praying through it, as I've talked about it, I remember being at a conference one time where I just all of a sudden got this strong impression that God was just laying in my heart. He said, Matt, you don't need to get a doctorate of ministry right now. What you need to do is you need to get a doctorate in how you manage your family and how you manage your wife is what you need. And I'm not saying that other people, they can't do it. I'm just saying for me, as I sought God's wisdom prayerfully, that's how he guided me and directed me. And he will do that for you if you seek him out in sincerity. There's no cookie-cutter pattern I can give to you. You have to go and seek God and his wisdom and how this looks. Then the third thing we need to do is we need to model this kind of wisdom. We need to model this to our children. We need to teach them how to navigate these things. We need to teach them how to work. You need to send your kids out and have them pick up sticks, okay? Teach them how to work. Show them how that's done. And the fourth thing is this. You need to wisely help your children navigate other areas of effort. You say, what are you talking about? The reality is there are lots of things that children do now are involved in highly that prepare them for work for later. And those are what I call the three A's, okay? They're athletics, they're academics, and they're the arts. Those things are pervasive in a child's life and take up a lot of time. And God can use them to help them navigate later these, water, these waters of, of work and family. And the reality is this. I see and I find children and teens that in these areas of effort like athletics, academics, that they so too often get caught up in what we do as work. That is, they too find that work is a place where they can find their identity versus no, these areas of academics and athletics should be places where there are opportunities to glorify God. Enjoy them, excel at them, do them well, but I don't do them for my identity. I do them ultimately for the glory of God. I also find that sometimes children can carry an unhealthy pace from under the demands of athletics. And I understand this because I was there. I was caught up in this. I was caught up in the athletics, and, and it's good. I don't regret it. But it's tough to manage of how I balance the other things that are important in my life, and we as parents need to help them navigate those things. So here's some things we need to help them think through. All right, just three things I want to, want to give you. The first is this. You need to help them understand their priority is first and foremost to glorify God. You need to talk through with the questions like this. How do I glorify God when I participate in these other areas? We're not saying to stop from these other areas. We're saying, you know, how do I glorify God when I'm in athletics and academics and arts? How, how do I do that? How do you help them navigate? How do I represent him well in these areas? How do I keep these things from becoming my identity? 
One man named Tom uh, Nelson, in his book, Work Matters, he said this. He said he and his wife tried to impress on their children that we live and we work for an audience of one. And what he meant by that is that all we say and do is to be an act of God honoring worship. Well, he said they had one daughter, her name was Sarah, and Sarah really latched on to that transforming truth. And, and Sarah was a committed gymnast. And she spent many years pouring her life and devotion into this gymnastics. And she went through hard, daily hard work. She, she went through the exhilaration of winning. She went through the exhilaration of, of losing as well and, and had success in it. But she also came to a point earlier in her gymnast career where she had a devastating ankle injury and it ended it. It was much frustration. Well, as Tom Nelson was talking and reminiscing with his daughter, Sarah, at one time, uh, many years later, they were reminiscing about her investment in gymnastics. And he said to her, he said, well, how is it, Sarah, that you stayed so resilient and so grounded in, in who you were? And, and how did you stay so buoyant in this? And she looked up to him and she looked right in her father's eyes and she said, Dad, it's because you and Mom taught me that I perform for an audience of one, God. And that's what we want him to come away with. And what that helped her is understand whether it was her pursuing gymnastics or whether it was her going on to be a mother or to work in a career. Ultimately, she knew her purpose would remain, and that was ultimately to glorify God. It didn't matter what successes she had or what failures she had. It remained clear that she would glorify God in whatever she did. There's a second thing we need to help them examine and help them work through is examining their priorities. If Christ is truly my priority, what should my involvement in these areas really look like? How, how do I, if, if Christ is supposed to be first, and then my family, and then come these other things, how do I, I have to help them examine those priorities? And how I need to balance or give, not balance, but even give time to these different areas. And how do I mix that in there together? We need to help our children work through that and have a sense of priority, a sense where they need to know when is it enough is enough that I give to this area, but I also have to give to others. One of my favorite stories is Eric Little. He's the British runner who uh, was a, a tremendous runner. Uh, he ran in the Olympics. And he was known for saying this. He said, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. That is, he understood that he could enjoy things and do things like athletics, and he could do it for the glory of God. But he also was the same guy that when he was in the Olympics, when his, his best event was coming up, it was on a Sunday, and he wouldn't run because he had a conviction that for him, that he could not run on Sunday. And so he didn't. Now, I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have gone to church and then ran, okay? And my point is not that you can't do anything on Sunday. That's not the point at all. But my point is he had some priorities. He had some convictions. And he knew how much was too much. And he knew how to balance that. And we need to help our kids figure out what does that look like for them and in their life. And then there's the last thing. We need to help them keep things in perspective. Athletics, academics, uh, arts are great things. But we need to help them keep that in perspective to how does that relate to all eternity. How does that relate? How does that fit in? You know, sometimes we put so much time, and the reality is you can put all this time into certain things. I put it in the basketball, and I don't regret it, but there's more to life than that. My mom was a help in this. I used to, I love, I mean, if you guys would have met me when I was a kid, you could find me on a basketball court. 
And we didn't just play up in the gyms. I mean, I grew up where we were playing on the streets, that I was going around looking for a game uh, on, on a playground. Remember, I wanted to get so good at it that I wanted to go to places where better players were, where uh, there was rougher neighborhoods. I would go to places where uh, my complexion of skin was the only one there, okay? Because that's where the good athletes went. And so my mom used to drive me there, and she would drop me off. And she didn't tell me this till later, but she used to actually go and hide somewhere else in the parking lot just to make sure I was getting along because I didn't know anybody there. But my mom also, as she encouraged me in these athletics, she also encouraged me with this. She said, Matt, you know, how is God going to maybe use your love of basketball? What, what, how can you maybe glorify God in this thing that you love? So through that, I got involved in something called Athletes in Action. In high school, I would go and i work at basketball camps with this group from Campus Crusade for Christ, and we used basketball to share, to build up these kids' talents, but, and also build mine, but also to share Christ with them and how to follow Christ. I went to three different mission trips abroad to where I went and I played basketball. At the same time, though, I shared Christ with people. But I found that in order for me to do that and represent Christ well in these areas, that I also needed to be nurtured spiritually. And so I needed to be in a place. I needed to be in church at times. So there was times when I had to make a choice and say, you know what, I need to maybe play, but guess what? I need to spend time where I'm being spiritually developed. And I'm not playing there. And I want to trust God if it's not enough work. But I want to give time to this so I can grow spiritually, so I can mature. I'm going to give time so I can serve and learn so that I can represent well in the area of athletics, but so that I might become the man of God I believe God has begun to make me today as well. And we need to help our kids wade those kind of waters when it comes to work and when it comes to other efforts in life. God desires to use our work for his glory and his honor. And we as parents need to model that to our children, and we need to walk along with them and teach them the truths as well. Amen? God, we come and we thank you and we praise you, God, for your truth. We thank you, Lord, for how you love us and you love us, that you guide us and direct us in all that we do. But I thank you, Lord, that you can take things that we love Or we can take things like my love of basketball and you can redeem that and use it. We can excel at it and have fun and enjoy it, but we can also use it for greater purposes and that's your glory as well. Lord, help us as parents to guide our children to, yes, excel in these things, do well, but at the same time to give you first preeminence in all that we do. And Lord, we ask you these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.